again, and uh, it's great to see you. And Jake and I have both said, as we're looking at the two services, we're not sure where everybody has been all this time, or where, we, where we've crammed you in the building, but it's, um, it's encouraging just a few, a few Sundays into this two-service thing to uh, look at, at this first service in the morning, and uh, just see a great group. Thank you for being here, and if you're visiting for the first or second time or so, um, a special welcome to you, and if there's anything that we can do to be helpful, or if you don't know how things operate on Sunday morning, we, we'd love to be helpful in any way that we could. We are starting a new series this morning, and uh, this is going to, Lord willing, going to take us through the fall. We're starting on the Gospel of Mark. That's the second book of the New Testament. And let me tell you why we're doing this. I know that some of you are in fields where you do continuing ed, and it might be, you might be uh, an educator, or it might be accounting, or or, um, financial planning, or whatever, law, medicine. But uh, there are all, kind, all kinds of fields that have continuing ed just to say, you know, make sure that you don't get so into the, the grind of, of daily practice that you forget both the basics and even learning new things. And uh, as sort of an exercise in that, besides just the fact that, you know, weekly worship is supposed to be continuing ed all through a Christian's life and, uh, and other times of learning too, but something I, I had hoped to do when I came to Greenville was that as long as I got to, to be pastor here, is that I'd like to do a gospel every four years. And so um, fall of 05, we did the gospel of Luke. And then fall of um, 09, we, uh, we did the gospel of John. And so this is our, you know, our rotation is due. So we're going to do the gospel of Mark. This is the shortest of the four gospels. And scholars are pretty much... Uh, the consensus is that this was almost certainly the first one written. And, and the indicators seem to say that it was written in the mid to late 50s, which means, and this is very important really for all the Gospels, but just since this is where we're going to park this fall, I really want you to hear this. The fact that it was written in the mid to late 50s and that Jesus died somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D., that means that this was written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, and that is critical. That is critical because there's been a lot of scholarship over the last 200 years of biblical studies to say that the gospels seem to be almost mythic in structure. They take a man who really lived named Jesus of Nazareth and they sort of craft him into the Christ of faith. And it's very important to come to these words and say, all right, is this a narrative that's crafted to try to lead you down the primrose path or is this the record of eyewitnesses? Because if it's the latter, that's crucial. If it's the latter, it means we need to take it as, uh, as truth. And you may have seen some of the splash that was created a few weeks ago. Um, this book by, uh, is it Reza Aslan, called Zealot. And this was just all over the internet because of this train wreck of an interview he had um, on a news station and just to create... And, and then, of course, like the saying goes, any publicity is good publicity because then immediately his book went to number one. But it just goes to show that, you know, people are always fascinated with this figure of Jesus. And I don't know if you saw any of that or have seen that in the past where Jesus is on the cover of a magazine or a new book comes out about him or, you know, back in the early part of the 2000s, it was the Da Vinci Code... But I don't know if you've had a situation, especially if you come from a church background where you sort of, 
You thought you knew what you thought, and then you hear, no, no, actually scholars say this, and it's very different from what you thought you knew. And you go, well, they're scholars. And, I mean, they interact with Greek and Hebrew and manuscripts and archaeology. And, I mean, like, maybe I've been wrong all along. Whether that's you, whether you, you know, um, Jake was talking about this morning, you might be the skeptic. You might be doubtful. In whatever posture you come this morning, or if you come in the posture of you're just frustrated with churches, uh, frustrated with how they take Jesus and use him like a wax nose, molding him to say or do what they want him to say or do. I, I can't think of a better exercise for any of us than to go to an eyewitness account and, and look at who was he, what did he say, and what did he do. And that's, that's the object for this fall. So we're going to start with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we don't want to come to whatever thoughts or preconceptions or misconceptions we have about the Son of God or just a man that we would consider a historic figure named Jesus. We don't want to come to Him and craft Him the way we think He should be, but maybe we do. Father, don't let us do that. We pray that Your Word... These eyewitness accounts would be the way in which we hear and see who the Lord Jesus really is and that you would use that to be good news in our hearts. And we're asking this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that one topic that always gets uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people's interest up is, is the education of children, especially gets parents' interest up. 
um, gets educators' interest up. And uh, you may have seen these kind of stories. I just feel like I'm seeing these, these kind of accounts more and more in the news about how uh, American students are doing in global rankings of different subjects. Now, the New York Times ran this story back this past December. The headline is, U.S. students still lag globally in math and science test show. Starts out, fourth and eighth grade students in the United States continue to lag behind students in several East Asian countries and some European nations in math and science. Then it says, although American fourth graders are close to the top performers in reading. Kind of just like had to get that in there so we don't panic. And uh, it says, let's see, South Korea and Singapore led the international rankings in math and fourth grade science. I didn't know Singapore was a powerhouse, but I found that out. While Singapore and Taiwan had the top performing students in eighth grade science. Now, you've seen these kind of statistics, and, uh, and it seems that when, that's talking about grade school, when you get up into rankings of how American students, you know, compare globally, when you get up into latter high school and then college rankings, we drop into the 20th something compared to, you know, developed countries. Now, you may or may not know this, but there is an area that some groups that do this kind of testing, that they test where American students consistently rank number one in the world. Self-esteem. In other words, they'll take the math test, and though, like, compared to Singapore, we get obliterated. But then they'll ask the students, how do you think you did? And American students will go, Amazing. I did great. And, uh, you know, we could tell our stories. I saw a poll recently, and uh, it, it, it asked Americans how many uh, believed in hell. And it was sort of a surprising result because it was higher than you might have expected as, just the, as the nation gets, you know, culturally more, more secular. It was higher than you would have thought. And then the question was, do you think you're going there? And it was like 1%. You know, so all these people believe in it, and almost no one thinks they're going there. Now, not that we want people to go there. I'm just saying, uh, those are sort of, of, they're cut from the same cloth, those, those two observations. It's very interesting that, you know, if indeed this is the first gospel, and, and I believe, uh, the first one written, and I believe it is, that the very beginning of the first gospel written, it doesn't begin with just launching into Jesus' biography. It gives you precious little about that. That's always been a frustration about the four gospels. You want to know, what was he like when he was eight? What was he like when he was 20? There's just all these important facts about his biography you don't get. And in fact, it doesn't even launch into, okay, well, he's going public with his ministry and he's teach- it doesn't start that way. How does the gospel of Mark start? It starts with God sending a wild-looking man into the wilderness, John the Baptist. And, and Mark is giving us clues that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies that the prophet Elijah would come back. Because Elijah dressed that way. You know, the hairy, kind of the caveman outfit and locust and wild honey. John comes out, fulfills those prophecies, and his presence and his message, it faces the people of God with a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. You have to ask yourself this question. Are you okay, as you presently are, or are you not okay? Are you okay, as you are, or are you not okay? If you're not okay, you need to go out to the prophet that God sent. Hear what he has to say. 
admit your sins, and undergo a washing. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. But if you're okay, don't. And the Gospel of Mark doesn't record this, but Luke in his Gospel records that the Pharisees and the experts in the law would not go out. And what was the takeaway? We are okay. As we're coming to this gospel, here's what I want to ask. And I want to ask this, whether you know this, maybe you have read through the gospel 50 times and know it rather well, and you've grown up in the church and had great teaching. That's wonderful. It may be that you're coming to this and you're really kind of a blank slate. But, But wherever you are, here's the question that we're faced with. It's the same one. Are you, as you are presently, okay? Or are you not okay? That's how this gospel starts. Now, what I want to do, I kind of did this with a passage a few weeks ago, and it just seems like maybe this is a helpful way to just kind of get our feet wet and start somewhere, is just to look at three key terms in this passage because they're huge for understanding this book. The first is the word gospel. Um, The second is Christ. And the third is proclaim. All right? Gospel, Christ, and proclaim. Now, very first verse of the gospel, what does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, because we call these first four books of the New Testament gospels, and Mark writes one of those four Gospels, it sounds to our ears like it's saying, this is the beginning of my book. You know, I am beginning my book now. That's not what he's saying. Mark had no idea that we would call these books Gospels. He's saying, right out of the, right out of the gates, the beginning of the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you get, you get an echo of that from Jesus. Look down in verse 14. It says, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that's interesting. Repent and believe in the gospel. What, what, What two things did he pair? The gospel of God and the kingdom of God. Now, here's the amazing thing. That term gospel has an Old Testament background and it has something of a pagan background because this is first century Roman culture. What are the backgrounds? In the Old Testament, the gospel was the pronouncement that, you know what, despite whatever's happening in this messed up world, the Lord reigns. If the enemies of God seem like they're going to crush the people of God, the good news is that God is still on His throne and the Lord reigns and his deeds are mighty, and he is still mighty to save. That doesn't change. In the pagan world, in the Roman world, there's actually an inscription that's been found, and it it says this at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And it's telling you about the life and the reign of Caesar Augustus. That was a pagan term for saying, we have good news. We have the announcement of the arrival of the sort of king slash god. Mark takes that term, as do so many first century Christians, and says, all right, if you want one word that gets at what we want you to know, it's that it's the gospel. It's good news. The king has come. 
and he's mighty to save, and it's news. We're giving you news. Now, that is so important. Because, I, and, I, and I see this even in conversation. If you pose the question to someone, what is a Christian? Nine times out, at least in my experience, nine times out of ten, when someone tries to answer that question, what is a Christian, what they'll launch into is like a Christian job description. You're asking a what is question, and typically what you'll get back is, what do Christians do answer? Does that make sense? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who believes that the Bible's true and, like, uh, goes to church and prays and reads. Okay, that's a job description almost. What is a Christian? And biblically speaking, a Christian is someone who has believed and reaped the benefits of amazing news. A Christian is not someone who meets this job description. The Christian is the recipient of great news. I always use this example when I think about this. Uh, my family's first December in Greenville, 2005, major ice storm. And we were without uh, power for almost seven full days. I think we were six and a half days without power. And it's cold and it's dark. And you think you know how quiet your house can be until you have a power outage. It, like, it's so quiet, it'll wake you up if it happens in the night. We kind of go, whoa, 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 why is there no noise? You know, n- nothing's humming and, and nothing's whirring. And, man, when, when you get word, especially if you've descended on someone else's house that has power and they can't wait for you to go. Um, we were treated very kindly during that time, but uh, I'm, I'm sure we were difficult to, to, to house. But, man, when you get the news, the power on your house is back. It's not like that leaves you going, yeah... I know. There's so I need to I need to write Duke. I need to um, where you just start thinking about all the things I need to do. The the amazing news is that it's finished. It's on. I mean, when when that that when the power comes back on is delicious. When the power's been off, the gospel is not presented as, "Hey, if you want to have a great life, here's the ten things you need to do, and if you will do these things, you'll have a great life." It is presented as news. Of something done. So important, okay? Gospel. Christ. Again, back to the first verse. The beginning of the gospel, what's the good news about? Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, many of you will know this, but just so we're on the same page, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ is his title. Jesus was his name. Christ is a title. And it, again, massive Old Testament background. Christ, come, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek. It comes from the word Christos. Christos is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Mashiach, Messiah. And they both mean the same thing, anointed one. And you look in the Old Testament... Do I always go to the left, your left, when I talk about the Old Testament? This is my Old Testament region, so just know this is where the entire Old Testament lives. Is just off my right shoulder. In the Old Testament, there were three God-given offices. And when, when God set someone apart, said on the one hand, you know, yeah, you're still a sinner and you're a fellow Israelite, but you have a special role. Those three offices were a prophet, 
or a priest or a king. And the way that somebody was set apart was they were anointed. But when there's this thread, especially in prophecy, but not just in prophecy. It's even in the law of God. But there's this thread that's pointing ahead saying, someone's going to come and he's going to be the definitive prophet and the definitive priest and the definitive king. He will be, there have been kind of a lot of little M messiahs. He will be capital M messiah. And Jesus shows up and is the anointed one. When was he anointed? It's in this passage. Look in verse 10. Baptized by John the Baptist. And we, uh, verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So much here. I, I could get 20 sermons out of this text. Let me just say a few things. Um, you know, there is another passage where you see God and His voice and the heavens interacting with the earth and the Spirit of God bird-like. What is it? It's the first two verses of the Bible. And this is not a coincidence. What, what Mark is showing you is that whereas the first few verses of the Bible, that's the creation, I'm showing you the means by which the new creation will take place. I'm showing you how the new heavens and the new earth will come about in the old earth through this man. And this is the amazing thing. For, for 30 or so years, Jesus, he was just a Judean. I mean... I don't know what it's like to grow up with someone who never sins. Do you ever start to be suspicious like, I think there's something special about him. But townspeople, you know, in, in, in Nazareth, they didn't, they didn't know he's the Messiah. And it's after this. It's after this anointing, and especially after the temptation in the wilderness, that he would come into a town and people who were demon-possessed would just, Ah! You know, don't torture us! There's this very much a before and after in Jesus' life. It's at his baptism. It's at his anointing where even the forces of darkness know he is, he's the one. He's set apart. And John, without saying this explicitly, shows you something very theologically important. He shows you this man is simultaneously God, like the God, and man, fully both. Now, how do you, how'd you say that? Look in verse 3. Mark starts off and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. In our Bibles, this would be Isaiah chapter 40. And it says in verse 3 that, all right, here's what was fulfilled. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he's saying this messenger who's prophesied to prepare the way for the Lord, that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. Who is... For whom is he preparing the way? Jesus. If you get your Bible and you look in Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord, Lord is in all caps. What does that mean in English Bibles? It's saying, prepare the way of Yahweh. 
Prepare the way of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Prepare the way of that God that when he came down on Mount Sinai, he turned it into something like a volcano. Well, when John the Baptist comes and prepares the way for Yahweh, who is there? Jesus. You know, we just sung that. Did you catch that? It says, Behold him there, you know, on the throne of God, talking about Jesus, the great unchangeable I am. This man, walking in sandals on the streets of Judea, is the Creator whom the angels cannot look at without covering their faces. And he's fully man. And this could be a whole other sermon, but look in verse 12. Mark, Mark goes into very little detail about this. You get more of this from uh, Matthew and Luke. It says that after his baptism, the Spirit, this is verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Why is that important? Among other things, if you're a human being and you go out in the Judean wilderness and you're exposed to the elements, heat by day, cold by night, wild animals all around you and you're you're without shelter, if you're a real human being, you'll need help. And the angels had to come and give him help. If you're sort of a supernatural, mythic God figure, you won't need any help. But what does Mark record? He needed help. He's God but he needed help because he's human. Now, those are big. I mean, that's big, splashy theological categories, but what do you do with that? Um, Think about this. Think about a parent who is just loading up a child to take that child to, let's say, soccer practice, and a child has to be there... 5.30 p.m. sharp. The coach expects everybody to be there sharp, and if you're not there, you you get in trouble. And so the kid doesn't want to get in trouble, so he's wanting to be punctual. And as the parent is just walking out the door, load the child in the van, drive to the soccer field, but, you know, a phone call comes in, and the parent learns that his or her best friend has been killed. And let's say this is mom, and as mom is hearing this, her child is saying, Mom, we've got to go. I'm going to be late. Even if she didn't consciously think through it, just intuitively, she would know, then you're going to be late. And and it's not because practice isn't important. It's not because punctuality isn't important. It's just that this trumps that, right? The gospel is the news that according to Jesus, it trumps everything. He's going to say in chapter 10, this is in verses 29 and 30 of Mark, He's going to say that this news is so important, it's so valuable, that it may call upon you to leave your parents. Not forsake them, not hate them, but, but leave. And, and you know, and in, a, in a connected age, in a generational age, that would be so much more crushing. But that you might have to leave your house, leave your parents, you may have to leave your friends, and you may have to leave your stuff. Now, we're used to... So people moving all the time and just being very transitory. But we're talking about you may have to leave the the field that not only is the moneymaker for your family, but this has been in your family in Judea for a millennium. And you think you have a sense of place? You don't know sense of place. And you may have to leave it. 
And not only is it going to be worth it if you do it for me and the gospel. He said, those are the first two sermon points. The gospel and me. It's not only going to be worth it, but you're going to get more, not only in this life, but in the life to come. It's, it's, it trumps everything. Family relations, material possessions, schedules, urgency. It trumps it all. Third point. Proclaiming. Preaching. Um, th- th- man, this verb fits the word gospel like a glove in a hand, or a hand in a glove. Gospel, especially for Romans, is the proclamation of a king. This verb for proclaim, or sometimes it's translated in English preach, even the translation I'm using will use both, is what a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, would do on behalf of a king. He would pronounce news, pronounce good news, on behalf of the king. When he was doing his job proclaiming, that's the Greek term. Now, did you see how this is very important in this passage? John the Baptist comes to get everybody ready for the Messiah. And what does he do? Verse 4, what does it say? John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But did John the Baptist, was he just John the baptizer? He was John the baptizer and John the preacher. So then he's getting everybody ready for the Messiah. The Messiah shows up. And then what does he do? Look in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Then you go later in this chapter, Mark 1, And it says that uh, early one morning, Jesus went out while everybody's still asleep, and he's praying by himself, which he did a lot, apparently. And all these people who've already heard him, and they've seen him do some amazing things, all these crowds show up, and they want to hear him some more. And so uh, the disciples can't find him, and they finally find him praying, and they come to him. Maybe the sun's not even up yet. And they say, all these people want to hear you. And he says... This is verse 38 of chapter 1. We've got to go to other towns because I came here to preach. And he goes and he preaches. And then it says in chapter 3 that finally of these original disciples, Jesus taps, he sets apart 12 of them as apostles. In chapter 3 it says he sends them out with authority to do what? To preach and to cast out demons. Um, now, I'm not harping on this because of job insecurity. It is worth noting, if you've, if you've just thought, you know, why, why, does there, why, do we do, why do you have to have sermons every Sunday? Is there any verse that says you have to have a sermon every time Christians get together? No, there's not. But the reason preaching has always been huge to the church is because of this right here. That when the kingdom burst in, the preaching really started. And it's been going ever since. What was being proclaimed? Now, we could say, well, the gospel. But, like, it says in particular something's being preached, being proclaimed. What was it? Okay, go back to verse 4. John the Baptist. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Look in verse 15. Jesus starts preaching and he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
It says in chapter 6, the apostles go out. And they start preaching. What do they preach? Mark 6, verse 12. They preached that people should repent. Apparently, repentance is a big deal. Do you know what repentance is? And I just wear this out. People who've been coming to downtown press for years could preach the rest of the next two minutes. And I'm going to keep saying this until everyone agrees with me. But only because I truly believe this is what the Bible teaches. And it took me too long to get this, and I want you to do better than me. I don't think it's because I wasn't taught well. I just don't think I got it. Repentance is literally a change of mind. It's a turn. But the way that preachers, teachers sometimes convey this is that it's turning from what's bad about me to a life that I can be proud of. And that is decidedly not what repentance is. That's a turn you can produce in and of yourself. That's called behavior modification. You don't need Jesus to do that. And you don't need the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what you need the power of God to give you, produce in us, is to turn from what I'm embarrassed about, about myself, my rage, my addictions, my whatever, and the things that I'm so pleased with myself about. And all the pride wrapped up in that. And to turn to God and say, have mercy on me. I repent. And you know what? You know what just blew me away? I mean, I've read this passage a lot of times, but do you know what just got me? Is that in the Gospels, the first time Jesus not only looks at a crowd that we don't know, but the first time he looks at you, the reader, the first time he says something where you and I are the subject of the sentence is when he says, repent and believe the good news. And it's just incredible because not only is he telling you for the rest of your life, do you want to be able to retain friendships? Do you want to be able to be close to people? If you can't repent, you probably won't be. If you can repent, you can be. Do you want to know how to get into the latter years of your life and not be bitter? You can, you can age and not get bitter if you can repent. If not, it may not go so well. If you're married, you want to know how to stay married? If you can't repent, there is a Mack truck headed for you. If you can repent, you can keep falling in love. I mean, not only is it giving us that for the rest of our lives, but the thing he's giving us is that if you can repent, the Pharisees would not. The most unwelcoming to Jesus were the ones who would not repent. But if you will turn to God for that first time and say, have mercy on me, here's what God offers. And keep coming if you don't know what I'm talking about because this is what we're unpacking all the time. Is that not only can God look at His Son who deserves this and say, you're my beloved Son. I'm so pleased with you. But if you can repent, God can look at the worst of us and say, you are my son. You're my daughter. And I'm very pleased with you. I've got to end with this. Um, I I quoted this, I don't know, a couple of 
years ago in a sermon, which I'm sure you retained in its entirety. But uh, I'm going to read this again. This is from a book about... Um, it has the compelling title, Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. And different chapters on different individuals, but this one's on George Whitfield. You may or may not have heard of him. If you see it in print, it looks like Whitefield, but it's pronounced Whitfield. Long story short, wildly influential on both sides of the Atlantic, an amazing man, got kicked out of the church. The established church wouldn't let him preach, and he would just preach anywhere. He had this amazing God-given voice, Benjamin Franklin, did not believe in what Whitfield was saying, but he loved hearing him because he said he believes what he's saying, and he's a masterful communicator. And eyewitness accounts say you, you knew something was happening when he would go outside a coal mine and start preaching, and you'd see these just tough... I mean, coal miners are tough now. Picture 1700s coal miners. And he would go to them and preach, and you would start seeing these little, little creaks in the dust. Tears as the gospel began to push on them. And uh, this is a quote from the end of uh, a sermon by Whitfield. It's a, and, uh, and you might picture 1700s, powdered wig, probably like this guy's probably just railing against sin and just, just letting people have it. He preached the gospel so sweetly. And this, at the end of this sermon, he says, all right, so in light of what I've said, what's the take home? What's the takeaway? And here's what he says. Come then, ye harlots... Come, you publicans. And in our language, what he just said was, Come, prostitutes. Come on. Come, loan sharks. Come, most abandoned sinners. Come and believe on Jesus Christ. Though the whole world despise you and cast you out, yet he will not disdain to take you up. Are you an addict? Are you a rageaholic? Are you selfish? Just come to Jesus. And then he ends by saying this. Let God's goodness lead us to repentance. Oh, let there be joy in heaven over some of you repenting. And friends, here it is. September 8th, 2013, Greenville. Wouldn't it be great if in heaven this morning there was rejoicing because we repented? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is good news. Please keep us from subtracting from it, adding to it, making it into something else. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for the likes of us, not only to preach and teach and heal, cast out demons, but to live what we could not live and die the death that we deserve but do not want, and to enable the likes of us to hear the divine voice saying, I'm very pleased with you. Drive these words down deep in our heart and grant us repentance. We ask in Christ's name, your name. Amen.